If you want to follow along, we're looking at Psalm 8. I remember the first mission trip that I was, that I was on, or I was probably in my mid-20s, I guess, and uh, we went on a plane to Farmington, New Mexico, and worked on the Navajo Reservation off of Route 666. Some of you have been there. And uh, during the middle of the this, this service, um, you know, they tell you in a mission trip, be prepared. You never know what they're going to ask you to do. And so sure enough, they, they asked one of the guys on the trip who happened to be an elder in the church, do you have a word for us? Would you come on up and share something, you know? And um, so he came up to the front and he read Psalm 8. And I, I've never forgotten it because I thought, what a wonderful psalm where all these, a lot of these people uh, were not believers. Some were. He's reminding them of God's glory in creation and that ultimately his glory here is Redeemer as well. But let's give attention to this psalm because it has so much to say about God, but it also has much to say about who, who are we? What is our identity? It's all right here in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength or or prepared praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beast of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are pleased to take your word and to apply it to our hearts. We thank you that it will not return void, accomplish your very purposes and showing us your greatness and that we would see how much we have been exalted as well by your grace. Help us to see Christ in this text as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 8 is a masterpiece of a psalm. It's majestic. It's a creation psalm? Yes. Is it a redemption psalm? Yes. Is it a messianic psalm? Yes. Is it quoted in the New Testament? More than once. And so we're going to consider the first three verses as a question, and then the rest of the psalm is the answer to the question. So verse 1, O Yahweh Adonai, O Lord our Lord, and the first Lord's all caps, that's Yahweh, the second Lord is not, that's Adonai, there's two Hebrew words, O Yahweh Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth, You've set your glory above the heavens. Verse 1 and and verse 9 are repeated. And so we're instantly struck with the Lord's transcendence. In theology, we often use these terms of both transcendence and his imminence. Is God far away or is God near? And the answer is both. 
Yes, he's far away. He's completely other than us. He's deserving of praise because he's so far beyond us. His greatness. God is infinite. He cannot be measured by space. You can't measure him. He's eternal. You can't measure him by time. He's transcendent. Solomon contemplated that in 1 Kings 8 when, he, when he's dedicating the temple and he's recognizing that God is going to dwell in this human hands have made a temple. And Solomon's blown away by this. He said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. God has to condescend to be in heaven. How much less this house that I built? You see, David is contemplating that God's glory is above the heavens. It's beyond what you can see. It's beyond the telescopes, beyond the Hubble telescope. And yet what we can see amazes us. And so in verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So David is writing this, and it's probably nighttime, and he's looking up. And David is shrinking. I remember John Piper many years ago was talking about people don't go to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. They go to the Grand Canyon to shrink, to take in all that glory and to see there's something so much greater than themselves. And that actually helps them. You see, you can't ask the question, what is man? without contemplating who you are in relation to God and being amazed by his design. David doesn't say, when I consider the works of your arm, and the Bible does talk about his arm, that his arm is what has redeemed us. It doesn't talk here about even, the, it doesn't say the work of his hands. It says the work of your fingers. The idea is it's artwork. It's precise. It's an intricate design that God has established the heavens and the earth by his fingers. I was looking at this week at some pictures from the Hubble telescope this week on Google Images. I wanted to share with you a few of those to, for, you, for us to, as we're thinking about this question. Josiah, you got those pictures? Let's look at this. This is the first one. You just massive you know, there's, they tell us, scientists tell us there's billions of galaxies and billions of stars in each galaxy. And that's a picture from the Hubble telescope. Let's go to the next one. And there we're just starting to see some of the beauty of these galaxies that are far away. Let's go to the next one. This is called the, uh, oh, what's the name of it? Sombrero. That's the Sombrero Galaxy. There's lots of different images of and this next picture is also of the Sombrero Galaxy. This is a galaxy far, far away from us that's just absolutely beautiful. And the last, what, do we got? what else you got there? That's another galaxy. You've got another one? That's another galaxy. So this is just amazing. There's just billions of galaxies, okay? And so um, if you're inquisitive... Minds and, and I, I'm not obviously the first to, uh, to ask the question because Google was finishing the question for me as I was typing it in. And it was, how long would it take to travel the universe? You know, how long would it take? Well, S Stefan Hoyer, who's a physics PhD at, at Berkeley, 
uh, in 2011, and this is the first one that came up, and he says, there are two issues here. First, the universe is expanding at a rate given by the Hubble's law. For the visible universe as a whole, the current rate of expansion is faster than the speed of light. Meaning, if we don't develop technology to keep up with it, we're losing the outer edges of the universe, or what we know to be of the outer edges of the universe, I should say. So he says that it's, it's traveling, the, the rate of expansion is faster than the speed of light, and the speed of light is 186,000 miles an hour. That's the speed limit of light. The universe has been around, he says, for 13.7 billion years. That's troubling to young earth folks. This is a PhD guy from Berkeley. To follow his logic, the universe has only been around for 13.7 billion years, but the visible universe has a radius of 46 billion light years. On average, the other end of the universe has been receding four light years further away every year. Clearly, there's no hope of actually traversing the, the visual universe. So, so much for how long would it take? But he goes on, so instead, let's suppose we're interested in how long it would take to traverse the current diameter of the visual, visible universe. That's 92 billion light years. So an observer on Earth, it would take 92 billion years. But in this spacecraft that's traveling at the speed of light, if you were to, to travel in a spacecraft going the speed of light, it would take you 410 million years to go to the other end of what is the visible universe that we can see, not the part that's going away at at four, uh, was it four light years further away than we can even keep up with a year. So the universe is big. Let's lower expectations. Let's just say, I wanna just travel the Milky Way galaxy. So Google, how long does it take at the speed of light How long would it take me to travel the Milky Way galaxy since we're just part of this local cluster of galaxies of which the Milky Way is one of many and we haven't even gotten, you know, this is just the Milky Way. This is a small galaxy. Answer, the Milky Way is a barrel spiral galaxy that is approximately 100,000 light years across. According to space.com, that means an object traveling at the speed of light, which is the theoretical maximum speed for any object, would take a hundred thousand years to, to, to travel the entire Milky Way galaxy. hundred thousand years going at the speed of light. Let's just kind of bring it down to a scale here. If our galaxy was the size of North America, then our, and this is Tim Keller says this, it, it, he says, then our entire solar system would be like the size of a coffee cup, okay? So here's the analogy, okay? So you got, if the, if the galaxy is the size of North America, our solar system would be like a coffee cup. And Earth would be just barely visible as a kind of speck in the coffee cup. So just imagine a little, 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 little bit of salt just went blink right down into your coffee cup, okay? That would be, um, so we know the Milky Way is one of at least 100 billion galaxies we can see, and the universe might be bigger than what we can see. So we serve a big God. This is just his universe. Here's another fun fact, though, to, to think about. How fast are we moving through space right now? So right now, the Earth is moving around the sun 
at 66,487 miles an hour. It's the equivalent of driving around the equator two and a half times in 60 minutes. But the Earth is a mere Ford Pinto compared to the Lamborghini of the solar system, which laps around the Milky Way at a blistering 497,000 miles per second. The speed you're moving when you, when you stand still is so fast that every 60 seconds, you're basically covering the same distance as the diameter of planet Earth. In, in one minute, that's how fast we're traveling through space, right now. And I was talking to Michael Hepner about this. We had lunch this week, and he said, man, if you are not a believer, that has got to be some scary stuff. If you don't believe there's a God out there that's controlling, you're flying through space right now at 497,000 miles an hour right now. If you don't believe there's a sovereign God over everything, you're in big trouble. And people want to say it's all a bunch of chance. Well, I don't think so. Now that you've heard these, these facts, now you're ready to ask the question. The question, what is man that you're mindful of him? We were just that little speck of salt in, in a little coffee cup. And that's if, if the Milky Way is the size of North America. I mean, you get the idea is that David's just looking up and, and he's blown away by the transcendence of God. And he's saying, who am I? And the answer is astounding. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated either God, God's plural, angels, or heavenly beings. And the, and the Septuagint translates it angels, and that's how it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going to go with angels. You've made him a little lower than the angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. Now, when you look at that language right there, and I've underlined it for you, what does that sound like? Crowned, glory, honor, dominion, all things under his feet. That is very clearly kingly language. We have been exalted. We are the apex and the glory of his creation. We are the only ones that are asking the question. My dog right now is not at home sitting and asking the question. I know she's on my couch right now. She is not asking the question, what is Molly that you're mindful? No dog is asking the question. Secretariat never asked the question. And I can tell you, Ollie, who escaped this week from the zoo, is not asking the question. Did you hear about Ollie this week? Okay. Ollie was the bobcat that has a Twitter account now that they, you know, they started a Twitter account for Ollie, this bobcat that escaped from the D.C. Zoo, and her Twitter account wanted to know if there was any good restaurants in the area. <laughs> well, Ollie was finally found a few days later. But they're, they're not asking the question. We're the only ones that are prompted by God because we're made in his image to think his thoughts after him, to have the ability to worship him and understand him, that we can actually ask the question. We are his image bearers. We've been crowned with glory, given dominion. All things have been put under our feet, and this is what we were made for. 
This isn't for one people group. It's not for one race. This isn't for Europeans only or for white people or for black people or for Asians or Hispanics. We're all made in the image bearers. We're made in the image of God. And that's why discrimination is wrong and, a, and racism is wrong and apartheid is wrong and infanticide is wrong. And all these things are wrong because they're a violation of Psalm 8, of what has God made. And it's also not just for men. It's for male and female, made in the image of God. Listen to Genesis 1 says, God created man in his own image, the image of God he created, and male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the reason that we are against the slave trade, the sexual slave trade, the oppression of women around the world is first and foremost, they're image bearers of God. And we are the crown of his creation and that women and men are equal bearers of that image. And for men to oppress and abuse and to treat women as objects rather than image bearers of God is sinful. The implications of this just, they just, it's just, I'm just throwing the rock in the pond and you just start to think about all the ripple effects of what Psalm 8 has to say about why euthanasia is wrong, why suicide is wrong, why torture is wrong, why murder is wrong, why abortion is wrong. And women say that they should have a right to, she should have a right to decide for herself whether she, she wants to keep her baby or not. Nobody says that when they're four months out of the womb. Why do they say that when they're four months in the womb? Father Frank Pravone is a passionate pro-life priest. He spoke some years ago at Covenant Life Church. He once said, if we took a moment of silence for each person lost to abortion, we would be silent for over a hundred years. This is a sad, sad thing. That's just America. So the ethic for how we should treat anybody and everybody, whether they're in the womb or in the nursing home, I saw this week, maybe you saw the video clip of the lady who was 94 years old who was on CNN, and I think the children must have set up a camera in the house. But this lady who, she had a walker, she could barely stand, and her, her nurse is smacking her and smacked her on the head and smacked her again. She's trying to get up and she's not getting up and she's being smacked. And, and why was there a shocking outrage? She was arrested. She's abusing the image of God. The epistle of James applies the image of God all the way down to our words and how we speak to each other. James 3, 8, and 9 says, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Those are people made in the likeness of God on your Facebook that you're responding to. That's when you get on that horn and say some verbiage to somebody that pulled in front of you or whatever comes out of your mouth when you're, when you're mad at somebody, these are image bearers of God that we are talking to. And it's, 
an awful thing the way sometimes that we speak to one another. Now, I want you to look at this psalm. We've looked at the psalm. Imagine you, you, you're, you're a camera guy and you've got your camera bag on and you've got four lenses in your bag and we've only put on one lens and that was the creation lens. So we're gonna take the creation lens off now, okay? Because our Christian worldview has four lenses to it. What are the four lenses? Creation, fall, redemption, glory. All right, so we've got three other lenses to look through here. And so our Christian worldview with these different lenses, if you take off the, the, the creation lens from it and put on the fall lens, and you look at verse two, verse two doesn't make any sense unless you have a fall lens in your camera bag. Because if you're just saying creation lens or glory lens, and you're like, wait a minute, verse two, what in the world is that? How in the world do you have foes, enemy, an avenger. Answer? Houston, we got a problem. We had a fall. The image bearers of God, as this is a, a lyric uh, praise of, of Genesis 1, and now there, and, but something's happened since Genesis 1. And, and now there's been this fall of mankind, and now the psalmist is speaking of foes, an enemy, an avenger and how babies and infants are gonna be the ones winning the victory and bringing praise in the midst of foes. And so we're told in verse two, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength or ordained praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, the Bible actually tells us that we are all now, naturally, we are enemies of God. That's the fall. The Bible says in Romans 5, 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You see, this whole idea of taking image uh, as image bearers uh, is something that, um, there's something that's happened in the fall now that all of the... um, these things that Psalm 8 is talking about, it's like taking a a rock and throwing it into a mirror. And that mirror is greatly cracked, right? But if you look close enough, you can still see the image is still there, but it's just a cracked image. We're still image bearers of God, we're still to live out Psalm 8, but the problem is now is is that we need a zoo. We need a zoo, and when Ollie gets on the loose, and Ollie was on the loose this week, WTOP had to let everybody know that this little 25-pound bobcat, sorry, folks, you're supposed to take dominion over all the earth, but, but watch out, because this thing, if it gets near you, it's gonna scratch you, and it's gonna take dominion over you. So it had to let you know. It's just, and, and the reason you have a zoo is you have cages, you have boundaries. You can only get so close to that bear, and so, and a lot of times there's water and 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 places to keep the barriers away because you're not properly doing Psalm 8 just yet. We got to put on another lens yet called glory before I can say, "Hey, Bobcat, come here, have a seat." Right? Now there are some zookeepers that are doing Psalm 8 a little better than us, but, but there's something that's happened, and the answer is it's Humpty Dumpty in the fall. Do you remember the little jingle of Humpty Dumpty? Here's Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty Dumpty together again. 
You see, the reality for us is in the fall is that we're fallen and we can't get up. The old jingle from the 80s in the commercial, well, that's our sinful state. We're not able to repair ourselves. We've been broken by the fall, but Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners, to restore the image of God that was lost and broken by the fall. So Hebrews 2, 7 to 9, is the writer of Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 and applying it to Jesus. And he goes from the first Adam to the second Adam. And he says, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus. And you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything under subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And this is talking about to us, to mankind. Is everything in subjection to us? Not yet. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So I want you to see how Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm. He's gonna change, as I said, from the first Adam to the second Adam. And for Adam, you read this psalm, and the greatest possible blessing is that we have been so elevated and so exalted that though we're blown away when we see his glory, yet he has elevated us and crowned us with glory and honor and put all things under our feet and we're to rule over the creation. Yet when you put the Christ lens on the psalm, now we put on that third lens, redemption, strap that lens on and look at Psalm two, we see that for us what was the incredible height of elevation to be crowned with glory and honor, to be made just a little lower than the angels. Then it says for Christ, this was the most incredible humiliation the most incredible humility. You flip it upside down. He's Yahweh Adonai. He's the one who made all those stars, all those galaxies. He became lower than the angels. And so what for us is incredible exaltation, for him is incredible humiliation. But Jesus comes down and he is the one who's going to be the, the baby and the infant that's gonna ordain praise. And he's gonna get praise from other infants and babies along the way, but he himself becomes small, he's a baby. As he's gonna restore the image for us. And so where this passage also gets quoted in the New Testament is Jesus comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the crowds are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the crowd's asking, who is this? And Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. It's my house. I'm Yahweh Adonai, this is my house. And he kicks these people out because he's God. And while he's doing that, the children are still crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the scribes and the chief priests, they hear the children singing these praises and they're indignant and angry and they say to, to Jesus, or Jesus then receives their anger and their indignant, and he says to them, have you never read? Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? You see, Jesus is saying, Psalm 8 is me. 
Jesus is Yahweh Adonai. Psalm 8 is being fulfilled and the chief priest and the scribes are the enemies. And the children are the ones that God has prepared praise to triumph over the foes and the avenger. So Jesus, when he came down, he didn't come to us. Chuck Colson says he didn't, you know, Chuck Colson worked in the White House, okay, under Nixon. He says Jesus didn't come in pomp and splendor and red carpet. He spoke to those whom no one would speak to. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. He had a borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb. It framed his earthly life. And kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead and swing the door wide open and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. And Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks. You see, Jesus has come. He came down to restore the image. And now he's gone back into heaven as the trailblazer, as the pioneer of our salvation. He's gone before us and passed through the heavens, Hebrews says. And yet he also says that he's taken us with him and that we are now, if we're in Christ, we're in Christ and we're seated with him in heavenly places. And when he died, we died. And when he rose, we rose. And we are... We are with him now in Christ. And Jesus is coming back again to make all things new and to fully restore Psalm 8. We will live Psalm 8 for eternity. So C.S. Lewis concludes in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, and he says a couple things that are interesting. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Meaning, if you saw them in a glorified state and you yourself were not in a glorified state, you would be wanting to worship them. That would be the dullest person here now and the boring. And then he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. He says this doesn't mean we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play. Enjoy the Super Bowl today. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outside, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And then he says, our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feelings for their sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. And he says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. You are looking at image bearers of God. And so this is greatly affects how we treat one another in every aspect of life. And the reason we're making a big deal about abortion today is because if we can't care for life, human life in the womb, then how are we gonna care for it later in life or anywhere else along the way? This is foundational. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, let's remember and rejoice 
that Jesus has come to restore the image. He took the image upon himself and he, has an, he is a human being in heaven. He's God and he's man. He didn't leave the human nature behind. And when he comes back again, he still has a human nature. And guess what? He'll have a human nature for all eternity. You'll be able to shake his hand, hug him, look at the scars. He's a human. He is God and he is man. He's a glorified man now. And that we long to behold. But we shall see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we praise you that this psalm is about you. We thank you that you loved us enough in the fall to come, become like us in every way yet without sin. How we thank you now that you're our, our elder brother and you're not ashamed to call us brothers. Thank you for shedding your very blood on a cross to cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And so we respond now in praise and worship and laying down of our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.